Welcome to the Congressional Record, a podcast by ProLegis. Each week, we bring you a deep dive into Congress's policy priorities. In this podcast, we'll cover the processes unique to the first branch of government and discuss some of the pressing policy issues legislators are working on. I'm your host, Charlene Burns, a researcher with the ProLegis policy team. Today, we bring you a special episode of the Congressional Record. I had the opportunity to speak with Taylor J. Swift of Demand Progress about the recent developments around congressional unionization. In March, the House passed a resolution that would extend protections for legislative staff to unionize. As a result, staffers will soon be able to organize their offices. In this interview, I speak with Taylor about the history of unionization and the implications of this historic vote. Taylor is a policy advisor with Demand Progress, focusing on congressional transparency, capacity, and modernization. He has worked closely with congressional offices, stakeholder groups, and policy experts to push for better working conditions and pay for congressional staffers. Prior to joining Demand Progress, Taylor worked as a policy fellow for the House of Representatives Democratic Caucus. During his time with House leadership, Taylor worked closely with the House Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress to elevate the importance of increasing congressional staff pay, retention, and diversity. After the break, we'll jump into the interview where Taylor answers questions about the lead-up to the House vote and what exactly staffers can bargain for. ProLegis is a new policy technology company founded by former congressional staffers and startup alums. We have one mission, to offer free tools that make it easier to learn about, track, and deepen your understanding of policy issues and legislation. We offer free features such as U.S. code redlining and a personalizable dashboard to track the legislation and congressional activity that matters to you. We also offer nonpartisan, unbiased information through our briefings and podcasts. Sign up for a free account today to get full access to the suite of policy tools on ProLegis.com. Hi, Taylor. Super excited to have you on as our first guest for the Congressional Record. Hi, Charlene. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I'm also super excited for the topic that we're going to be talking about today, uh, congressional unionization. Obviously, the recent vote in the House to ensure protections for staff regarding unionization on the Hill is a major development, but it's one that's you know been a while coming, I suppose. So to kick things off, why don't we go kind of far back um, to when the issue of congressional unionization first gained traction in the 1990s? Yeah, great. So I'll start all the way back in 1995. So Congress actually enacted what was called the Congressional Accountability Act, which was intended to apply Congress to the laws that applied to the private sector and the rest of the country. And one of the provisions in that bill was the right for legislative branch employees to actually unionize. The CAA provided support agencies to unionize under section 220E and D. So support agencies like the Capitol Police, the Library of Congress, the Congressional Research Service, the Government Accountability Office, all actually received unionization rights upon enactment of this regulation. But Under that section I mentioned earlier, 220E, the Office of Compliance, which is now actually known as the Office of Congressional Workplace Rights, so not to get confused, I'll be mentioning them a lot, they had to actually open up a comment and rulemaking period on whether or not 
congressional staff in personal offices, committees, and leadership would actually be able to unionize as well. And so this comment rulemaking period took about a year. It ended, was completed on September 4th. And to the surprise of the Republican-controlled House leadership, the majority of the board actually determined that congressional staff, in fact, could unionize if they were permitted, you know, if they were permitted to. And in order for Congress to allow that to happen, each chamber, so the House and the Senate, would actually have to pass their own resolution in order to fully enact those protections for legislative uh, congressional staff. Well, because it was a Republican majority, and to be honest, they did not foresee the Office of Compliance to come to that conclusion, the House never did anything. The House just let those regulations sit. And so for over 25 years, they've just been sitting dormant, waiting to be activated. I like to use the analogy of you know, starting a car. Congress built all of the pieces. They put the engine together. They had the keys, but they never put the keys into the car and turned the ignition and turned the car on. So that's kind of been what the story was in the 90s and kind of where we are today of over a quarter of a century later, nothing has changed, but so much from inside the institution has gotten worse, which now leads us to this inflection point um, which we can gladly discuss moving forward. Yeah, that'd be super interesting to kind of jump into why it took so many decades to get us to the point of, you know, the House actually passing a resolution. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit more about what's been going on? Yeah, so I think to start, one of the greatest misconceptions um, to the general public is that congressional staff have all of this power and influence and they all make all of this money and they sit on Capitol Hill and they're all fat cats and they make all these backdoor deals and, and all of this. When in reality, that's not the case at all. Like, sure, they're the experts, you know, they help um, every single congressional office from a personal office perspective, district offices, committees, caucuses, you know, they, they're in every state and thousand of offices. They, they help Americans with requests, meet with businesses, draft legislation, conduct oversight. They help keep Congress running. But contrary to that popular belief, congressional staff salaries, especially for entry and mid-level positions, are extremely low. Um, there was a recent study done by Issue 1 that showed one in eight staffers in Congress are not making a living wage. And that number actually jumps to 70% for entry-level positions like staff assistants. And a recent internal congressional survey determined that about half of congressional staff are struggling to pay bills and make ends meet. And roughly two-thirds of those staffers are unhappy with their current compensation level. And to kind of give a more accurate comparison, Capitol Hill staff are on average paid 20% less than their executive branch counterparts. So what does this mean you know, in the decades leading up to where we are now? So you combine the lack of living wage, the difficulty to move up in positions, the lack of having negotiating um, rights and a seat at the bargaining table. This has resulted in decades of high staff turnover, which actually causes an absence of institutional knowledge throughout Congress. We like to call this the congressional brain drain. And so what this does is it actually weakens Congress by placing more power in the hands of outside actors and other government branches. So you have greater influence from corporate lobbyists, 
from the executive branch, the judicial branch, you know, when the average staffer only stays for two or three years, realizes that it's not sustainable and then either leaves for a corporation or the private sector or another government branch, all of that experience, all of that knowledge goes by the wayside. And so in turn, the legislative branch has actually weakened itself because it hasn't invested to the point that it needs to. And so the reason why there has been at a fundamental level, a need for unions in Congress is a combination of factors. We mentioned the low wages and the high turnover, but working in Congress is really, really difficult. Long hours, uh, stressful work environments. Sometimes members of Congress can be really demanding. There hasn't been for years um, centralized HR policies. So a lot of unchecked things around harassment. I know um, over the past two years, it's been really difficult for both chambers to really nail down COVID policies. And then of course, the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, you know, all of these things in combination make a workplace that's really, really, really difficult to not only work in, but stay in for a long period of time. That summarizes what's been happening for decades. But what do you think changed this year to trigger all the movement we saw in 2022? It's been difficult for congressional staff to kind of address this independently, right? Each each office, it's technically its its own independent entity. It's very difficult for staffers to go to their bosses and be like, hey, this is a really difficult situation because there's, of course, people wanting their positions, but then also congressional staffers are in public service and they're trying to, you know, help solve really consequential issues of their time. So bringing up something that's really difficult for them is really hard, a really hard sell for their boss. But there was actually this social media account that appeared about a year ago that ended up exploding in December and January and February that kind of led to this piece on unionization. And it was called Dear White Staffers. And it allowed staffers uh, to anonymously tell their stories about workplace harassment, uh, lack of pay, issues within the workplace about either a member or their colleagues, or just stories that, quite frankly, couldn't be told publicly. But the veil of anonymity allowed these staffs to be more candid and, and honest about it. And, you know, the trouble is we don't know the validity of some of the stories, but the, the fact of the matter remains that there were hundreds of these stories over the weeks and months. And so, in uh, late January, uh, a congressional reporter brought this up to Speaker Nancy Pelosi and said, you know, we have this account, Dear White Staffers, talking about the struggles of the congressional staff workplace. Do you support congressional staffs uh, forming unions, the right to organize? And she responded with, well, the DNC recently organized and I supported that. And so as soon as she said that, it was just this green light. Because for years, this conversation throughout congressional staff was an undercurrent, right? Everybody was having the conversation of the difficulty of working in this workplace. But in order to get a movement like this started, you have to get sign-off from lawmakers. And there is no better sign-off than having the Speaker of the House overtly endorse this kind of effort. So a couple weeks later, I believe on February 9th, uh, Representative Andy Levin of Michigan introduced HRES 915, on behalf of congressional workers, it was called the Recognizing Congressional Workers' Right to Organize. 
So that bill, that resolution was to adhere to the ordinances and provisions within the Congressional Accountability Act. And within weeks, it had over 150 co-sponsors. It was just this avalanche of support within the institution because everybody knew this problem existed. So a couple of weeks later, House admin held a hearing on the issue. They brought in legislative counsel from the Office of Congressional Workplace Rights, which was formerly the Office of uh, compliance, which I mentioned previously, and OCWR determined no changes would be needed from that 1996 regulation. So everything was already in place. And so it was so easy for this resolution to then just get a vote and pass the House. And so on May 10th, 2022, just about a couple of weeks ago, uh, this passed with a majority in the House, which then granted those House staffers that ability to organize. And so from then on, we've seen massive amounts of support from all over the country, from our biggest political leaders. You know, I already mentioned House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is also support, President Joe Biden as well. And some of the nation's largest unions have been coming out in support as well. The AFL-CIO, the SCIU, the American Federation of Teachers, the American Federation of Government Employees, uh, the National Education Association, and so many more. And I think it's it's great to finally recognize that this issue has been a problem for so long and to see lawmakers work on behalf of their staff to help make this a reality is a testament to what Congress can do when the issue is put in front of them. I know you have a background on this issue and have been working closely with it for a while. Can you tell me a little bit more about you know, how you came into being involved with all of this and the work you've done to push forward congressional unionization? Definitely. So prior to joining our team at Demand Progress, I, I worked on the Hill for a couple of years and I worked in a House leadership office and, and helped set up what is called the House Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress. And you know, a lot of people know quite a few House Select Committees. Um, the very famous one right now, the January 6th Select Committee. There's a Select Committee on the Climate Crisis, amongst many others. But not a whole lot of people really know about the House Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress. And that was put together because the House recognized that there were a lot of operational technology and capacity shortcomings that actually weaken the institution, kind of a lot of what I was talking about before. And when I was a part of the leadership team and, and we were kind of hosting dozens of staff uh, sessions, listening sessions to kind of hear and understand at a deeper level of what staff needed and what staff wanted, there were so many themes. And it goes back to those themes I was talking about earlier of no central HR, the lack of upward mobility and professional development opportunities, difficulties with pay, which then led to difficulties in retention Amongst so many other things, you know, you saw these common pieces that every single office on both sides of the aisle were struggling for. And luckily, this select committee has been incredible. They've been doing amazing work since being formed in 2019. They've actually pushed through over 150 recommendations. And I, I highly suggest that our listeners go to their website and really look at some of the ideas and recommendations they've been putting out. Um, to date, over a third of them have been implemented fully and two thirds are on their way to being implemented. And a lot of these things have to do with, you know, staff capacity, oversight resources, centralizing that HR, providing more opportunities for interns and staff to grow. And then of course, heightening congressional staff pay. And 
that's something that Congress has actually taken a huge step forward in the past fiscal year. Um, so recently in February, the House passed their appropriations bill for fiscal year 2022. And in that bill included a 21% increase in House budgets. The funny thing is, even though this 21% increase was the largest single year increase in that budget since its creation, that number still only got them back to fiscal year 2010 numbers. So we are still behind despite giving a large increase to the operational side of Congress. And so there's still a lot of work to be done, but moving back to the unionization piece, the reason why we felt this was such an important thing to bring to the forefront of the discussion is while unionization isn't a silver bullet or a magic wand, it is an extremely important component for staffers to be able to have a seat at the negotiation table when they're working with their boss and when they're working with their colleagues, because we've seen the lack of these protections create an environment that isn't sustainable for your average staffer and forces them, quite frankly, to either go to the private sector to make more money or continue to struggle paying the bills, even though you're working 60, 70, 80 hours at times. And so working with staffers and, and helping them understand the history around this issue and their rights really, really allowed us to have that conversation start two, three years ago, which is why I strongly believe you saw so much support so fast when this resolution was introduced. We've been having conversations with personal offices, committees about this for a long time so that when this opportunity arose, we could finally push this effort forward and actually get that resolution passed in the house. So it was a great accomplishment and hopefully we can continue to move that conversation forward. So you mentioned before that um, unionization is not a magic wand. And there's obviously been a lot of conversations now that the House passed the resolution about what exactly this means for staff. And there's also been, I think, different information about what is possible and what isn't possible. Could you maybe clarify a little bit about, you know, what this vote actually means for staff? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the most important thing to mention right now, um, you know, we're at the beginning of June. So this bill passed on May 10th. The Office of Congressional Workplace Rights published the regulations in the congressional record, title plug, um, in the congressional record on May 16th. And that those that being published meant that there was a 60-day period until the, the um, pieces actually go into effect, until the, those regulations go into effect. And so they won't fully be available for staff until July 18th. So it's really important for listeners to understand that you can have these conversations within your workplace um, if you're a congressional staffer right now, but the protections aren't afforded until that date. So still there needs to be some precaution around having those questions asked because those protections aren't given yet. But once that date arises, in order for an office to have an election, at least 30% of the office needs to file a petition with the executive director of OCWR. Um, and so once OCWR confirms the validity of those petitions, then they'll have an election, which then it's just a majority vote in that office um, in order for it to be recognized as a, as a union. And of course, that is a secret ballot election. And these elections can take place at the personal office level, 
the committee level, both from a minority and majority staff perspective, and then of course, congressional leadership offices as well. So just to help clarify how those races would be conducted in the offices, I think is really important. And then you mentioned in your question about like kind of what can be bargained over. Now there are a lot of disputes around what can and can't be bargained, but you know, federal employees have some limitations on those, those working conditions that are negotiable. They're not allowed to negotiate on healthcare or retirement benefits, um, but they're allowed to negotiate on things like promotion policies, vacation time, sick leave, paid family and medical leave, disciplinary procedures, telework, flex time, um, severance policies. Let's say a member retires or leaves office or loses an election, you know, severance policies can be negotiated. The question on everybody's mind has been, however, is pay negotiable, right? So there was guidance on this question updated by OCWR on May 26th that state that federal executive branch employees, so White House employees and executive branch employees, they can't bargain over federal statutes around health, or excuse me, around salaries and benefits because those are determined by law. However, there are much fewer federal statutes that cover congressional staffers' pay and benefits. So OCWR determined that they're actually allowed to bargain over salaries and benefits. So to kind of take us out of the weeds, what that means is that House staffers can't negotiate the member budget, the overall office budget, but they can negotiate compensation within their office. And so I think that that is a really important clarification. And it's not just me saying this, Kevin Mulshine, who actually served as senior counsel for the Office of Compliance when these regulations were being put through in the mid 90s, has said this as well. And so there has been this ongoing discussion about what policies and provisions can be negotiated. And I think it's really helpful to clarify a lot of these things. So I hope that answers the question. Yeah, I expect this will be super helpful for listeners. I know there's been a lot of contradictory reporting on what can and cannot be bargained for. Um, But my next question is, after July 18th, once offices can officially start organizing, what are your expectations around what will happen in Congress? How many offices will be organizing? Will there be a party split? And um, will there be a similar push in the Senate? Yeah, that those are all fantastic questions. So I remember the day that this passed the House, a reporter asked Pelosi, you know, um, what do you think is going to happen with the number of offices? Kind of like you said, what do you think is going to happen the number of offices um, forming these unions? And she bluntly said, I hope my office unionizes. So again, just having that explicit endorsement from the speaker is, is more than welcome. Um, but It seems like there's going to be a pretty big influx at the beginning, especially from the more left-leaning offices, progressive offices. Um, It'll be interesting to see moderate Democrat offices where they stand. I know that every single House Democrat, I think, except for one or two, supported and voted for the PRO Act, which is a lot of what these pieces are, except for outside of Congress. So it'll be interesting to see that. But you brought it up. It, it'll be fascinating to see whether or not Republican offices, especially Republican staffers, uh, push for these within their offices as well. Because, you know, I've mentioned a lot about difficulties in the workplace. That's not exclusive to one party. This is budget problems and capacity issues and technology issues. All of these things are are issues that happen on both sides of the aisle. And so, 
it'll be really interesting to see if a lot of Democrat offices are, are going to be providing these protections for their employees. Will Republican employees do the same and want to organize? Or because it's a politically difficult issue for Republicans, will they, will they not even have those conversations with their staff? And if they do, would something happen in retaliation? I don't know. I, it'll be really interesting to see how it plays out, but I think that'll be fascinating nonetheless. So you also brought up, you know, what what could potentially happen in the Senate, and I think that's going to be a fascinating piece moving forward. Unfortunately, because of the filibuster, it's going to require 60 votes in, in order for this resolution to pass. And since we're at a 50-50 breakdown between Republicans and Democrat senators, it's going to require 10 senators at minimum to support this effort. And it's interesting because when these regulations were first promulgated in the mid-90s and they weren't acted upon in the House, uh, Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa, who is still in the Senate uh, at the time, wrote a law review article overtly calling the Republicans in the House hypocrites because they wouldn't afford these protections to their own congressional staffers. And so at the time, he was supportive of these efforts. It, it'll be interesting to see if a resolution does get introduced, if we could get a member like Chuck Grassley to, to support something like that, that could potentially snowball into to more Republican members. But only time will tell. We've heard rumors that uh, a couple members of Congress are working on this on the Senate side, but nothing has been introduced yet. And I also really want to briefly mention, you know, we've talked about the House staff that are covered. We've talked about the Senate that have the opportunity to be covered. But there's actually also a third piece to this equation that hasn't gotten any attention, and that's the joint staff that isn't covered under either of the chambers. And so some of these joint staffers are the Congressional Budget Office employees, the Office of Congressional Workplace Rights employees. They're not covered under either of these resolutions. And so Congress is actually going to have to pass another resolution, a joint resolution, in order for these hundred-ish employees to get um, coverage as well. And so it'll be interesting to see whether or not Congress follows through on that effort uh, too. It's obviously a very exciting time right now in Congress to see all of this happening. And we have a lot to look forward to, to see what actually comes this summer and going forward with the impacts of this, this change. And so Taylor, I wanna thank you again for joining. This was super insightful and hopefully useful for our listeners who are looking to better understand what may happen come July. So thanks again. Yeah, thank you for having me. Understanding the annual appropriations process has never been more simple than with ProLegis' appropriations tool. The tool is a one-of-a-kind, easy-to-use, searchable database that provides historical context for federal government spending bills and contains appropriations data from fiscal year 2016 to 2021 for every account and subaccount. ProLegis' appropriations tool can help staffers quickly identify appropriations levels and trends from previous fiscal years. Whether you're working on a policy memo, reviewing appropriations requests, or trying to understand Congress's appropriations decisions, the appropriations tool can help. Sign up for our free ProLegis account to get access to the ProLegis appropriations tool today. That's all for this episode of The Congressional Record. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to sign up for your free ProLegis account if you haven't already. 
you can go to prolegis.com, that's P-R-O-L-E-G-I-S.com, to find additional show notes and sources for each of our episodes. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Our handles are in the episode notes as well. We'll see you next week on the Congressional Record. Thank you.